This podcast is produced for informational purposes and does not constitute any scientific, legal, or medical advice. The views and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are those of the guest alone and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and positions of the host or any other entity or organization. Listeners are encouraged to listen with an open mind and form opinions of their own. Welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Adam Yee, who is food scientist by day and food podcaster by night. Welcome, Adam. Great to be on here, Gary. I'm excited. Yeah, we're excited to have you. So, Adam, why don't you start by telling the folks some of your background, how you got into the food industry, what your passions are, all that kind of stuff. Great. So, um, I, I like to tell the story a lot about how I found out about food science. And in high school, I, I used to cook for my friends all the time. Like I, I watched the Food Network instead of dramas, I guess to say. And I learned about um, how to cook. And mainly I like to give credit to shows like Good Eats that really kind of dived into a bit of the science behind it. And it was like, cool, yeah, I, I love this. So I cooked all these really interesting dishes, like um, things I could find from rabbit to okonomiyaki to jambalaya and i shared it with my friends and um that gave me a, a sort of joy so to say and so i even decided to take a bit of a little bit of cooking courses at community college and i actually didn't really like it too much and i, I was it was just you know a lot of yelling a lot of fast-paced work a lot of repetition that i wasn't um, really keen on and so when I was thinking of going to college. I was actually debating on culinary school and uh, regular college, so to say. And so I decided to do some research. And what I did was Google food and college and out came food science. So I, I did a little bit of research on it, but it was still very vague about what food science was like was it about culinary was it about nutrition the the information wasn't really well I couldn't really find much information at the time so I took a shot anyways and I looked up food science colleges and applied to them and I got into Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and even then even in freshman year I didn't understand what food science was I thought it was all about cooking at that point until I started going into the motions, started taking more classes, starting to get more involved in um, the department, whether it was producing jam on a pilot plant or um, being in charge of a couple clubs or even uh, participating in product development competitions. And that's kind of where I kind of fell in love with the whole idea of uh, food in terms of how food science can create and mass produce food that can really feed the world. And so I got more involved into it. Uh, I, I learned a lot more about product development. And when I graduated, I topped right in. I worked at a granola bar factory in Phoenix, Arizona. And then I transitioned over to designing protein bars for um, a pretty big company. Um, and then I transitioned again over to uh, with all of these resources in the big company to nothing at a startup where I make plant-based meat now. Hmm. And so it sounds like you had a really successful pivot. You loved food. You loved to cook. You didn't want to be in a kitchen getting yelled at uh, like uh, one of those uh, crazy TV chefs. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, you got to uh, you got to stay involved with food, but in a more controlled environment. A lot I know a lot of people do come up from the restaurant angle first, and then they get into being a research chef. Do you ever regret that you didn't actually come that pathway or work in a kitchen? Um, no, honestly, and I'm I'm one of those people who who have no regrets, or I've, I've trained myself not to have regrets. It's I think it's really important to live your life now than in the past, so to say. But in that point, like I've talked to a lot of chefs and research chefs who didn't even know what food science was midway into their career. And I actually noticed that to be a really big problem um, in terms of how food science is communicated nowadays or in the past, nobody knew about it at all. Like people knew about it during college, maybe if they were lucky to be in a university that had food science or way down the line in their career when they're 30 or 40 past the restaurant business age, um, past anything. So um, it's kind of a hidden thing I like to do in my spare time is to promote food science. Um, and, and there has been successes from college students to high school students in discovering some articles I've written about food science, which I, I found really impactful. Do you, when you were in college, did you get involved in any sort of the industry college consortiums like IFT or R, RCA or anything like that? Yeah, IFT was pretty prevalent in our college, though we weren't very active in it until uh, me and a couple of students who are now product developers um, entered the product development competitions. And we were this like no-name college that didn't even have a good master's program. But we had the, I don't want to say ignorance, but uh, the creativity to create um, products without any knowledge of anything. Like we didn't know what natural flavors were. We didn't know anything about processing. Uh, We just had to be creative in how we made products. So we started entering these competitions. We got our butts kicked a couple of times, Um, but then we started to get it and we started to teach other people to get it too. Um, to a point where we were consistently winning competitions at IFT during my tenure at Cal Poly. And, and how do you uh, how do you get it? How do you how did you make that leap? We asked the winners, "What did they do?" That's kind of what it is. Like, even though we're all competitive in, in the student sense, like it's important to work together. And it's what's well, the worst I can say? No. Okay, great. Um, but in, I can say this now because it's been like ten years. But uh, yeah, they pretty much sent us kind of a winning paper. Uh, we lo- we analyzed it, um, we refined it a bit, and that was kind of it. That's the honest truth to it. It's not a glamorous story, but it is the fact that this is how the industry works in terms of how you can accelerate yourself as an expert. There are obviously ingredients that have expertise, that have people behind them, that they work on the product much more than you have. So talking to those experts, you acquire that knowledge to improve your skill set. It's always interesting to see where creativity comes from. Do you consider yourself to be a naturally inquisitive person? Are you are you one of those guys who's just asking a lot of questions all the time? I'm trained to ask the questions, I guess to say. I, I think I think there is a point where it is natural, but with podcasting, I, um, my job is to ask questions. And when you when you learn about asking questions, I, for example, a really good book is called um, A More Beautiful Question by Warren Berger, for mm-hmm. instance. I've read that, that book. Yeah, right? Uh, he had another one called, like I think, A Book of Beautiful Questions. Um, that was pretty good as well. And so uh, other podcasts that uh, talk about questioning is also 
really important. I think Tim Ferriss sometimes gets into it as well. Uh, and so those tips really helped me form ways, or it gave me the idea that questions, asking questions will get you the results much faster. And what better way to ask questions uh, with an incentive behind it? So there, there are two ways I do this is that one, an incentive for asking a question to an ingredient supplier, technical expert is obviously we would buy the ingredient from them. It builds a layer of trust. Two, for podcasts at least, uh, we get to share your episode to everyone. If I can ask questions, that'll help me in my job. So um, the incentive leverage is is really interesting there. And I think um, that's something that a lot of people really don't know is that people are happy to answer. They feel prideful about answering the questions that you, you say to them, uh, especially if they're really good questions and really test what they think about. I think there is a level of respect for asking good questions to get the information you want. Well, this is uh, this is uh, a topic we have frequently in the podcast here. My last uh, podcast episode was titled "Why Can't Some Food Companies Innovate?" and <laughs> and you know, Adam, there's a, there's this sort of idea in the world that there are these geniuses out there with light bulbs floating above their heads, but. But I, I think you're right. I think a lot of it is just asking a lot of questions and being naturally curious. I agree. There is also, again, I'm not claiming I'm a genius, so please don't like, don't, don't assume that. But there is, there is a spark that happens when you, let's say, let's say you, you treat the questions as twigs <laughs> and, and you, you gather the question and you gather the answers and the answers are twigs. And so you, you, gather a lot of answers and so but these twigs are very flammable so when a spark happens everything connects and i think that's the beauty of it i think that's the beauty of these types of questions is that you can become innovative the more solutions and the more things happen i think um, a common thread is how do you connect the dots when you have all the information i think that's that's a synergy that happens when you become creative um and I don't know how that's really formed. I think it is over time. I don't, I don't even know. I think it's when you just have this information and you somehow find a way to connect the dots. I think that's when you become innovative. Um, but most people don't want to, don't want to ask the questions. And I think that's kind of why um, some of the food companies aren't that innovative because they don't need to ask the question. Yeah, it's interesting. You said uh, you were trained to ask questions. So I guess we could all train ourselves to ask more questions and open up more pathways to creativity. I agree. I agree. If you want to learn it, <laughs> you have all the information in the world on the internet. So you talked about connecting the dots. Can you give us any examples from your career where you went down this path of ex exploration and then the dots just got connected to an aha moment or a, or a new product? My favorite way of solving solutions is someone gives me a very hard problem and I use questions to solve it. And I think that's kind of the, the basis of how I structure a lot of innovation is if I get a challenging problem, there are ways to connect it. So this has happened a lot in my role as um, granola bar manufacturer, protein bar designer, and plant-based meat person. Um, these have all been challenges that we have to just find ways to solve them. And I think that's the, the puzzle. So I don't think any aha moments have happened in that, in the situation of me being a food scientist, 
for even with the podcast, I would say that it was just what is the answer to um, being a cool hip medium to talk about food science uh, or food jobs. Um, it was really just finding an answer to a problem that someone brought up. Mm-hmm. You found your love, you found your passion. Uh, you're fortunate in that regard. Not everybody gets to go to college and say, yeah, this is definitely what I want to be doing. So you got out of college with your background in food technology. You go to work for some leading companies. I assume you're doing well, you're comfortable, and then you decide to co-found your own company. Why in the heck would you do that? Why not just why not just ride it out and be comfortable? I've, I've asked this question a lot, uh, not to myself, but also other people. And so the origin of, of Better Miko is quite interesting because another project brought that together. Um, my Food Job Rocks has gone on, oh, at the time, was around 100 episodes deep. In episode 102, um, I had the fortunate event to interview Paul Shapiro, who wrote the book Clean Meat, because my audience wanted to learn more about lab-grown meat or cultured meat or whatever you want to call it nowadays. And Paul wrote a book about it. Um, and he's quite famous in the animal welfare circles. And so he decided to, or I didn't read him, great interview. Uh, we kept in touch. And then I sent an email to everyone about me being at Expo West. And Paul reached out saying, do you know any food scientists? And, well, I'm a food scientist. So I'm like, what's up? Um, and so we got to talking. And I developed a very, very basic prototype to send to him. Uh, Paul is vegan. And the, the basis of Better Miko is uh, plant proteins that can be blended into meat to improve their nutrition and taste. So um, Paul could eat it. So he got his wife's dad to try it and he liked it. <laughs> and, and then Paul was like, okay, do you want to start a company with me? And it's like, that was kind of the, oh, I don't know. And so let, let's kind of go through this thought process of it. During my time in Phoenix, um, I did small projects. I did these very small projects. Some didn't do very well and some did all right. And um, I would say my food job rocks was one of the more successful ones. Um, so I've been building this entrepreneurial streaks bit by bit. And I knew that there was a goal eventually to jump off on my own. Um, but again, I, the, my job at Isogenics was super comfy. It was a very comfortable job. I could um, go to conferences and get dinners uh, for, mm. from vendors. I can, um, I can really demand a lot of things from my vendors, um, which now being on the other side of it, I realized like, wow, I should have been a bit more sensitive, but that's besides the point. Um, mm. But with all these resources, like, yeah, why give up? Um, or why, why drop everything and leave? And yeah, I, I talked to a lot of friends about this. Um, the chief science officer at Isogenics was my mentor. And um, I told him about this first. And, you know, he he says I should do it. Um, actually, now that I think about it, when people understood the situation, they said, yeah, I should do it. Like, I don't know if it was the tone of my voice or just the logic of it. Um, but just the, the risk is not, wasn't, most startups are very risky, uh, as you know. And um, the, the risk tolerance was less so in, in this situation just because Paul is an excellent fundraiser. 
Um, he, uh, we, we are a funded startup, for instance. Um, but also there was an itch to start a company and to an itch. I don't want to say to prove myself or, or an itch to see if I could actually do it, but it was kind of that selfish feeling. Um, I think with the I wanted to also learn a lot more about the plant-based meat movement because, well, that's, as you know, as everyone knows in the space is exploding right now. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to learn more about it because I knew it was, it was a potential for the future. So, um, with those, with those factors in place, uh, I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. it. Because the work and here's here's my basis on making really tough decision is there, there are three questions that pop up. It's what's the worst that can happen? What's the best that can happen? And what is the minimum amount I need to start? And so uh, I use this with everything. Podcasting is one of them. Or podcasting goes through this message. Um, a lot of the projects I've done have always gone through these uh, through this method. And so with Better Miko, it was, well, the worst that can happen is, um, I fail, or like, no, probably nothing to be honest, because I wouldn't invest, I wouldn't put some of my personal funds in there. Um, and the best that could happen is that we're a funded startup, we get a lot of press and you know, things are pretty good. Uh, in fact, recently we, we just got a press release from uh, we're working with one of the largest meat manufacturers in the U.S., uh, Purdue Farms. Um, luckily, I can say that right now because it just happened today. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but we did that under a year, which is actually really impressive when you think about it, uh, because food companies move like big food companies move at a snail's pace. Um, so you know, that's the best that could happen. And what's the minimum amount I need to start? Well, I knew through my time at Oxygenics, I knew how to build up products really fast, uh, just because we had so many fast cycles. And it was, and just like, as I talked about before, we, I can contact experts in the field, I can ask them questions, and I can build a product based off the answers I get. And that's the basis of it, pretty much. And, and it's like, okay, that takes minimum, or that takes minimum investment, and uh, we can get it to work. So. That's kind of my thought process on really challenging decisions. Mm -hmm. So your company, Better Meat, we we all know that this space is exploding with uh, Beyond and Impossible, other large companies getting into it. What's the, what's your vision? What's your niche? How how do you stand out? I mean, on the one hand, you're awesome. Uh, you're positioned in an awesome way that the market is exploding. The pie's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Every year revenue for plant-based protein is going to go up by every projection I've seen. That's the good news, but uh, the other side of the coin is you're going to have more and more competitors. So how do you stand out? So surprisingly, our niche is, um, it's kind of like under your nose in a sense. So we blend, we, we create blended products and there, there are some successes in like mushroom blended burgers. So that was kind of the inspiration, but ours uses a bit more protein into um, so we make plant-based solutions that can be blended into meat and it, we can do a 30 to 50% um, reduction of meat per, let's say, skew, 
and um, it'll improve the taste, it'll improve the texture, it'll improve the nutritional profile, um, and all that good stuff. So our approach, which is interesting because it's very hard for people in this space to tackle this approach, is blending it. Um, most, like Paul is a very rational um, person, and though he is vegan, he believes that um, tackling this market uh, could be more impactful than plant-based meat because from our research, plant-based meat only is about 1% of the meat market, right? So um, by blending it, we can kind of cut more of the pie, especially if we take a B2B model and tackle bigger meat companies, we have a higher chance of making a bigger impact. I think that's kind of the basis of the company mm -hmm. is that we can make a bigger impact by taking a blended approach by reducing um, me, so to say. So, so what's your value prop? And I'll, I'll ask it two ways. First of all, to, to the companies that you're working with, like Purdue, and then secondly, the consumers. What, what do they both get out of what you offer at Better Meat? So the value prop for big companies is they, they want to get on this trend in any way, shape, or form. And I think that's kind of important to realize that the meat companies need to innovate. And they're one of the companies who know that this is coming um, they know there, there are sparks of that. So how are they going to innovate? Can they make another plant-based burger? Can they make another, um, whatever. Uh, but blending is actually a topic that isn't really well, um, explored. And I think now it's getting a little bit more explored because of the whole, the whole buzz in the market. Um, but it hasn't been explored too much. So it, that's unique in their sense and it's innovative in their point of view. And I think, because the meat industry is, or the meat processing industry is recognizing um, plant-based meat, they want to get on that train. I think that's the basis of it, pretty much. Um, for the consumer's point of view, um, the, we there's a lot of studies that show that, oh, we're probably eating too much meat. And maybe people want to reduce their meat consumption. I think now there's a trend that no consumer knows, but every food industry person knows called flexitarian. Um, it's like the clean label of that was 10 years ago. Like no one knew, knew what clean label was except for the industry. So flexitarian is that new term. Um, and flexitarian is very broad. It's reducing their meat consumption, whether it's like one meal or one day or one week, um, just reducing their meat consumption in general. So, um, there are many options to do that. You can buy a Beyond Burger instead of a regular burger, or you can maybe just eat products that have a little bit of meat and a little bit more um, healthful attributes. Mm -hmm. And so what's the kind of feedback you're getting from consumers on things like taste and texture and all those sorts of things? The ingredients we use, um, they're, they're plant proteins, obviously, and there are functional fibers that, uh, I think are really important and they help bind and mimic fat very well, especially when mixed into a meat product and cooked. So consumers really like it. Um, I think they, they've noticed taste differences as in much more juicy and succulent, succulent. And I think that we've done basic tests through our friends and family and also um, some companies who are working with our product have also done tests that have confirmed this. Um, some people can't even tell at all, which I think is also a plus because 
if a, if a product's healthier and it tastes the same, you'll probably choose that one. Um, so I think that's kind of the benefit on there. For manufacturers, it's, um, one, it's easy to use. So you just hydrate it, add it in, and you just go to town. Um, so I think that's a benefit there. So if you, if you had a crystal ball and you were to look at this whole plant-based sector and project out five or 10 years, what do you, what are your projections? Um, so for five or 10 years, I, some people make claims like, well, end meat in 2030 or something like that, which I don't believe that. Um, I think what, what's just going to happen is that the market will be segmented, um, to a point. And there, there'll be a lot of different segments in this meat market. I think not only do you have plant-based meat that will be segmented off with real meat, but maybe you'll have segments of premium grass-fed meat. Maybe you'll have segments of, depending on how fast technology goes, um, lab-grown meat or, or clean meat. Um, and there's just going to be so many different segments just because of how how the world works right now that I think is just going to be chopped up. You see this with plant-based milk, like huge growth. Um, and I think, I think it's now double digits in the category. So um, you're going to see the same with me. It's, it's just going to be different types and there's going to be a lot of choice for everyone. I think that's what's going to happen. I don't know how much, but there's definitely going to be a big impact just because the technology has been better now. So how did you get from point A to point B uh, with your company? Your company is not even a year old. You, oh, it is a year old now, but uh, just a year old. Just a year old. Okay, so uh -huh. you're on your first anniversary, and so you get together with Paul Shapiro. He's got, he's got this book he's written on clean meat, and you guys have some ideas, but what were the next steps? How do you, how do you commercialize all that and make it all start to work? Well, I like to say once you commercialize one product, you can find ways to commercialize any product. So um, at a product, develop, product developer standpoint, you have to make the product robust enough for um, it to be commercialized and easy enough for people to understand how to commercialize it. So um, in all standard, design a formula, um, work on some unique processing mechanisms and uh, and replicate it, grow it, grow and grow and grow. So um Scaling up is one of the most important skill sets as a product developer and understanding how the scale up process works is vital for fast growth because the, the more, the better you can explain your process to anyone you're working with will save you so much time. And the better you understand how your process works theoretically on large scale systems, will save you months, uh, maybe some would even say years of work. Um, so that's kind of the secret sauce to it all is that you have to understand your product well enough um, that when you're creating it on the bench, you can replicate it on when you're making 10,000 pounds. It, and it seems like you, you did that quickly. You got, yeah. you, you went from concept to scale very, very, very quickly. Is there, is there a secret you want to share or did you just, did you just have uh, some of that knowledge? Man, if I if I gave the secret away, everyone. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, the secret, I, I think you know the basis of this whole pod, podcast interview would be ask the right questions. Um, and I think I think once you, 
once you understand the commercialization process, because all commercialization processes are pretty much the same, no matter what product you do, that's a, that, yeah, there's always going to be an ideation phase. There's always going to be a design phase. There's always going to be a pre-commercialization stage. There's always going to be a pre-commercialization stage and there's always going to be a, there's always going to be a commercialization stage and there's always going to be a post-commercialization stage. Um, no matter what, in, in terms of how you scale up, maybe maybe when you're beginning like selling chocolate chip cookies, probably not. But um, but when you any type of process where you're dealing with a lot of people, you're going to have that. So um, it's just understanding that process really well and just fine tuning it. I think that's kind of that was the test run I did with Isogenics is that, you know, we, we've always had these stages and I just um, had the opportunity to understand all of it uh, from a big company standpoint, which I think a lot of food scientists don't take the opportunity to do. Most food scientists like to stay in their little corner and just do one phase, but the best food scientists understand the whole process. And that's really valuable as you grow in your career. I think, I think a lot of people don't understand how important it is to understand everything when it comes to creating a food process. Mm -hmm. So, um, I guess the proof is in the pudding in a sense. Um, uh, let me think as a pun or not, um, like understand the whole process and applying it to the startup has worked out pretty well. Um, obviously we have hiccups and obviously every food pro food project has hiccups. Um, but, in terms of understanding the whole process, like it, this has been a validation, um, at least in my situation, where uh, it worked, <laughs> to say the least. What I know you can't give your secret sauce away, but uh, describe the basic ingredients that are in your product and how are they different from other products like Beyond or Impossible or the product Nestle's about to launch. So um, our products... We don't use a lot of like we're pretty clean label, and because we use meat as a as a functional helper um, in terms of the bunny aspect, we don't need to put things like methyl cellulose or um, or heavy on the flavoring. So we can we can be a bit light on that because our goal is to enhance meat, not to replicate it. Uh, there is a benefit of we do have some things that replicate the meat like texture, but the, the goal of it is to really enhance it and, and make it taste even better. So um, I think that's kind of our, our deal is that we, we have a relatively clean level product. Um, for example, our chicken one is just wheat, chickpeas, um, pea, uh, fiber, um, bamboo fiber, psyllium husk, and a little bit of natural flavors depending on who you ask. Um, and so and some of our other products have like mushroom powder or um, or things like that. So we can get a we can make the product have a very clean label um, because we are using meat as a way to um, improve the function to make it as a way to make it taste like meat, so to say. And so you mentioned chicken. Are you are you making formulas that you would blend with uh, beef or pork or other proteins? Correct. So we actually have four. So how, how I like to structure product development is um, we have chicken, pork and beef. And we actually have some other things as well in the pipeline that, you know, may, might help with like jackfruit formulation or um, 
or things like that. And so we also base it off of single source protein. So for or single source allergen. Um, so for example, we have chicken, pork, or beef that's made with just a wheat allergen and then a soy allergen. And uh, we have a few that are no allergen as well. Um, they are very special case scenarios just because um, supply and all that. But that's kind of how we do, that's kind of how we structure things. So ours is very solutions based. So if a client wants something, we'll probably make it pretty fast, um, at least as a benchtop and see if they want to go through the motions on that. Um, but we just have a lot of solutions uh, based on what the client needs. So what, what were what were some of your biggest challenges? You, you, you've had your first year anniversary. You went from nothing to striking a deal with Purdue. What, what, were, what were some of the big stumbling blocks you hit in the first year? Um, well, what I didn't know as a project developer were two things is leverage and shipping. <laughs> so leverage is interesting because when you're in a giant company, you, you have a lot of leverage and you can boss people around. But in a startup, it's so hard to get one bag of, the, of ingredients because they want you to buy pallets or truckloads or whatever. Like, you know, that's where the money is. Why would you help this startup, like, buy a bag? Like, why would you give this, a bag to a startup? It, it means you're probably losing money in that deal. Um, so in that case, it's really hard to, to get the ingredients and I think that's a that's a big hurdle for startups, is that the just the ingredient suppliers want scale, so they want you to buy a truckload, but you can't even afford a bag. Were, were, um, were, you, were you able to work with brokers and distributors to solve that problem? I go direct. Oh, luckily, I have a very good reputation with the people I work with, and I've worked with people in the past. I think that's also very important to um, hammer down. I've. I've some brokers I worked with, yes, and, and some brokers I've been friends with. Sometimes I can go direct. Um, the podcast has really helped with the reputation in terms of um, getting people on my side, so to say. So people will help me out and people will do favors, but it does get um, stressful when you know you're, you're expending these favors um, just to get one bag um, of high quality ingredients. So that's that's the trouble with a lot of startups is that it's very hard for them to scale because the distribution model for most ingredients um, is based off a truckload. So uh, you know you're not there yet, and you might not be there for like a year or two, but or three or whatever. But that's just how the cookie crumbles. Um, so using that was an interesting situation for me. So I had to really leverage my network to get ingredients and i'm very grateful for that i think because we're a bit mission driven it also helps as well so lever um, leverage and scale what are, what are the, any other major speed bumps in the last year yeah shipping i didn't know was that expensive like not only do you have to pay 50 like let's say a 50 pound bag costs like 50 bucks a ship um that maybe that might double your ingredient cost and not only that but once you make the product you also have to ship it to the consumer or, to the consumer and so our, our cfo kind of deals with that um, more so but I, I had to look at the numbers in terms of that and yeah i didn't know how big of a situation shipping is luckily we have a dry product so or we ship people a dry product um so it 
it's a lot easier to work with in terms of, and that's kind of what I accounted for too, in terms of um, ease of scaling. So um, by shipping a dry product, I can send it without it being refrigerated or water weight. It doesn't have to be accounted for. Um, so that's a benefit there, but still, it's still really expensive to ship from point A to point B. So as you, as you get bigger orders, I would assume the economy of scale is going to start to kick in for you. So that's going to be helpful, but correct. I would assume there's going to be other challenges along with that as well. Oh, I mean, you know, there's always challenges in, in any company you're at. There's always going to be challenges. So for me, challenges are just, they're challenges <laughs> and, and they're just things that we just have to go through. I don't think they're, um, I think for me, it's, it's, great to have challenges because they work as puzzles and I, I really like solving puzzles um in terms of getting from point a to point b and so um yes there's going to be challenges uh there's going to be different challenges but we're more fortunate than most startups just because we have the funding <laughs> that's that's really important um for those who don't there are, there are strategies to get around that um but we're really lucky to have the team that that is competent and has all the voids filled in terms of building a business and we're fortunate to have the funding how hard was it for you to get funding what was uh, what was the process can you describe what you went through to get that funding um i can't because i am not the funding expert uh paul shapiro is has been fundraising all his life um and uh from the humane society so the people involved in funding plant-based movements, they want to help you. And it is a very tight-knit community. And I think that's important to understand. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to uh, go into debt and max out all your credit cards. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when you look at this company, what sort? What can you share with us in terms of the, the, the medium and long-term goals you've got for better meat? Uh, we, unfortunately, I can't say anything right now, but we have some really cool technology in the pipeline. I think that's all I can say. Um, you just have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah. It's if, we're, a, if we're this far now in a year, what can we do in five years? I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's an exciting, uh, it's an exciting area. So, uh, mm -hmm. I would assume if I, if I'm interviewing people from uh, beyond and impossible, they're not going to tell me all their secret sauce either. Yeah. They, they won't. They, they'll probably be more tight-lipped, to be honest with you. Um. <laughs> what, what, can you what can you tell our listeners about seeing your product on store shelves or in restaurants when you partner with these companies like Purdue? What sort of messaging or marketing do you think they're going to be seeing? Um, Purdue is using the word plant-powered right now, so I think that's something that might be more... Um, might be shown a bit more. I mean, I think just with the word, anything with the word plant in it, it's probably going to be hot for the next couple of years. Um, and I guess that's all I can say in the marketing aspect. Like we got, we got to wait and see if people choose these products or not over the, the conventional. So um, it is a waiting game. Hmm. Plant powered. That's an interesting tagline. Are you excited about that tagline? Yeah, it's a pretty good tagline. Uh, 
you know, mar- marketing is good. Marketing is all fun in games, but uh, uh, and sometimes the interesting to see what works. Like for example, um, there's been some interesting studies about like vegan versus plant based, and vegan has a lot of baggage associated with it. So people are now putting plant based. However, now there is going to be an interesting hurdle about health and plant-based because because of beyond meat and impossible foods mainstream um, approach people and this always happens with anything that becomes mainstream people are questioning its health benefits um so does plant-based equals healthy i never really thought so i just thought it meant plant-based but um impossible and beyond's mission and in their stage right now was to mimic a hamburger it wasn't to make a healthy hamburger. It was to make a plant-based hamburger. Now there might, because of obviously the press has been talking about how um, impossible and beyond might not be as healthy. Most likely their goal is going to be making their products healthier. Hmm. That'll be interesting to see if they can pull that off. I guess one more big challenge, right? If they can make a product that replaces meat, I'm sure they have the one, they have the money, but two, they have the the innovation to, to make healthier products. I think that's going to really uh, be a big focus in the coming years for them. I bet I'm here with Adam Ye, food scientist by day, food podcaster by night. Adam, you've done over a hundred episodes of your podcast. Uh, what's that been like for you? Pretty much life changing, I guess to say. Um, so when I started this three years ago, um, just very basic interviewing my friends uh, from the industry who worked at chocolate factories, Safeway and all that stuff. And um, I just diligently practiced it every week, interviewing people I found on LinkedIn and, and things like that. And um, I just kept on doing it because I found one, I found a lot of joy doing it and it helped a lot of people out. Um, and eventually, like, PR firms started to contact me, universities asked me to speak about these types of projects. Um, actually, more about my food job rocks than Better Miko, surprisingly. Um, and it was just a really interesting thing as as things started to snowball. Um, we got ranked on Google about food science. So to segue, to, to kind of loop it all around, like, now my food job rocks can be the site that really educates the people who want to know about food science about food science. And I think that's kind of um, rewarding. It's very rewarding for me to be one of those articles um, or, or platforms that can teach people who are curious about food science about food science. I think that's, um, it kind of brings it full circle in a sense. So Adam, what is the best way for anybody who would like to follow up and talk with you? Uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? LinkedIn is the best way because LinkedIn. I don't, yeah, I don't get swarmed by, um, by, by emails. Um, I have like one email for the podcast, podcast at myfoodjarbox.com. If you want to talk to me about Better Meat Co., adam.e at bettermeat.co. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best way. I mean, we're on social media too, My Food Jar Rocks on Instagram. Twitter, Facebook, you, you know, you name it, iTunes, Spotify. You can find me anywhere. Okay, good, good. So with so many things going on in plant-based these days, what what are you personally most excited about? Um, 
you know, all, all these big companies, you mentioned Nestle before, um, and more companies on the way, they're launching, they're launching products and they're launching different types of products. They're, they're going to one up each other. Everyone's going to, uh, launch a better and better product. I think that's the beauty of the industry. Uh, you see this in protein bars, um, in terms of how people are one upping and going with the trends. And you're going to see that with plant-based meat. Um, maybe there's going to be a keto burger. Maybe there'll be a, um, uh, a, a chickpea burger. Who knows? Um, I think that's kind of the, the cool thing about the industry is that there is going to be keep. Now we're at a point where innovation is going to keep on scaling. Um, and it's a fun time to be in. Yeah, the pie, the pie will grow for the industry and reward investors, but uh, consumers will have more choices. So I guess it sounds like a win-win. Yeah, I agree. A kind of a good time to live in. You know, I've been involved in the food industry for 25 years plus, and I tell people all the time, I've never seen this degree of innovation that we're mm-hmm. having in the food industry. It's almost like a renaissance right now. You, you feeling that out there? I read Elon Musk's uh, biography one time, and there was a good article about how uh, maybe five years ago, people only cared about, the only innovation was how many clicks you can get on an ad. But now that's changing because we're, we, we just have a different viewpoint of social media now. It's becoming more, well, people don't trust it too much anymore. So now we're changing our innovation to more impactful problems. Obviously Elon Musk did a great job um, pushing that uh, in terms of, okay, now why not focus on space or um, electric cars, right? So now the focus is on mission-driven projects or innovation. And what's more mission-driven than the food we eat? The, the food we eat is so mission-driven because it's so connected to us. So it's an impactful way of innovating. And I think that's kind of the renaissance we're in is that now we, can't, we are now focused on innovating with a purpose. And innovating in food is probably the ultimate purpose you can have in terms of impacting, especially now, the world we live in. You, you picked a great name for your podcast, My Food Job Rocks. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank my guest, Adam Yee, food scientist by day, food podcaster by night. Adam, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. 